Today we will be in Hosea 3, so turn with me there. And as you get there, you know, what do you do when trust has been broken? Uh, What do you do when trust has been broken? You know, if someone, if we tell a secret to someone and they pass that secret along, they start telling other people our secrets, we may choose to never trust them again with anything personal and private. We may say, uh, we may still have relationship with them. We may still be friends with them, but we may choose never to share anything of consequence with them. Uh, if someone lies to us, right, we may choose to never believe what they tell us again, right? The, the level of trust may be broken and say, well, well, you're not, what you say is not trustworthy, and so I'm not going to trust anything you say. And so if they tell us something, we'll go find another person to back it up. We'll, we'll seek extra witnesses, Uh, to what they uh, testify of. But some relationships cannot weather a break in trust. Certainly as we think of marriage, marriage, the foundation of marriage is trust. It is built on trust. A husband and wife have to trust each other. And if that is broken, whether that's by failing to keep our word Because when we say something to our spouse and we fail to do what we say, we erode trust. So whether it's the slow erosion of unkept promises or whether it is something shocking such as adultery which shatters trust, we can find ourselves in such a place that a marriage is unable to be repaired. And that the only thing that is left to do is to break the covenant because it's already been broken. So then we take the formal steps to do that, right? So so there are times when uh, trust can be so broken as to never be repairable. Today we come to a startling story in the book of Hosea, and it's one of redeeming trust. And I want us to see in our passage that God will turn the hearts of his people back to him. God will turn the hearts of his people back to him. So let's go to the scripture and let us read Hosea 3, starting in verse 1. And this is the word of the Lord. And the Lord said to me, Go again, love a woman who is loved by another man and is an adulteress, even as the Lord loves the children of Israel, though they turn to other gods and love cakes of raisins. So I bought her for 15 shekels of silver and a homer and a lecta, a barley. And I said to her, you must dwell as mine for many days. You shall not play the whore or belong to another man. So will I also be to you. For the children of Israel shall dwell many days without king or prince, without sacrifice or pillar, without ephod or household gods. Afterward, the children of Israel shall return and seek the Lord their God and David their king, and they shall come in fear to the Lord and to his goodness in the latter days. And this is the word of the Lord. So putting, situating our passage here, uh, our passage is kind of an interlude in the prophetic announcement. And I say it's kind of an interlude because, you know, chapter 1 begins and we kind of get this picture of, uh, the, the family life of Hosea. Hosea is called to go and marry uh, a woman of unfaithfulness, a wanton woman, and have children of unfaithfulness. 
uh, uh, children born into a culture of unfaithfulness, and that is the northern kingdom of Israel, right? This is the time during the divided kingdom. There's the southern kingdom, that is Judah, and then there's this northern kingdom of the other tribes. And Hosea is here preaching to these other tribes, and he's to have children. And he has three children born uh, between him and Gomer. And these are object lessons for the people. The three children represent three judgments. First, we have Jezreel, or God scatters. And it's a promise of punishment. There is the child, Lo Rama, no mercy, and the promise of merciless judgment. There is the third child, Lo Ami, or not my people, and the promise of God that says, though you may call me my, your God, and though you may say that you're my people, you are not my people, and I am not your God. So that's the chapter one. And, and chapter two kind of gives us this back and forth of oracles. We have oracles of judgment and then also oracles of restoration, oracles of hope and redemption. And then as we come to chapter three, we step back into the family life of Hosea. Now, this is kind of the last real time we see Hosea's family come into the picture as as object lessons. And so we have an object lesson here of Hosea's family for the people of Israel. And this lesson is at God's command. So let's look at that first. God's command in verse 1 here of chapter 3. And the Lord said to me. Right, so it's important for us to understand that this is what Hosea is doing is at the bequest, at the request of God. This is not Hosea's uh, attempt at political punditry. This is not Hosea giving political opinion. This is not Hosea saying, this is what I really want to do, so I'm going to say, God told me. No, this is the word of the Lord. Right? And we have to understand that this is the scripture. This is a good reminder for us. And we would do well to remember that when we come to the scriptures, we come to God's word. God has spoken. And to him we must listen. We must heed. We ignore him at our own peril. And the purpose of God speaking to Hosea was that he was to speak further to the people of Israel and instruct them and teach them and encourage them and admonish them and warn them and call them back to re- in repentance. And the purpose of his preaching, even though it was to turn the people back to God, uh, we realize that may never happen. And Hosea uh, probably came to that conclusion that what is going to happen, what God has promised in judgment is going to happen because the people are intractable. Well, one of my buzzwords, incorrigible. They refuse to change. They refuse to turn back. But those who did listen, because there would be those who would listen, will be changed and will be saved. Indeed, Hosea's obedience to what God calls him to makes it clear to us that Hosea understood this as the purpose of God Because what Hosea is called here to do is not something any normal man would do. And we'll see why that is as we go through. Because he is called, but but the first, first action here that Hosea is called to, right? Go again, love a woman, 
who is loved by another man and is an adulteress. He's called to go and love a wanton woman. And now the question, there's many questions here. And there's some ambiguity in the passage. So we have to address those questions. We have to at least think about them. The first is, is this woman that he is called again to go and love, is that Gomer? Right In chapter 1 we see Hosea is called to marry Gomer, and he goes and he marries Gomer. Is this Gomer here in this chapter? If it is Gomer, is this kind of just a a repeat of what happens in chapter 1, or is this a new story? Is this something new that is happening? Right, a new situation or circumstance. But if it isn't Gomer, who is she? And if Hosea really did marry Gomer in chapter 1, then does that mean that she's dead? Are they divorced? Right, so there's lots of questions that come up here because there's ambiguity. It doesn't say go again and love Gomer. And uh, as I mentioned when we were looking at chapter 1, There's some question if chapter 1 is just a vision. Is this a continuance of that vision? Or is this something real? Scholars arrive at different answers to these questions. And again, the text is ambiguous enough to lead to different answers, different conclusions. However, I find compelling that the, the argument is that this is actually Gomer, that Hosea is called to go and love again. And for at least a couple of reasons. The first is that the woman is called an adulteress. To be an adulterer, you have to be married. To be an adulteress, this woman had to have been married. She is not just generically called here a prostitute. We see that elsewhere in, in the passage. In the, right There's even that hint uh, in chapter 1. One commentator rightly points out that if God is calling Hosea to love an adulterous woman... Of another man, it sure comes close to Hosea committing adultery himself. So, one of the reasons I'm convinced that this is Gomer is because it is his wife who is committing adultery. And so, he's to go back to his wife, his adulterous wife, and to redeem her. The woman here is also not named, right? It's not named. There's just generic kind of pronouns or generic references. Go again, love a woman. Uh, And in verse 3, and I said to her, and I think that this is Hosea's way, right? What does any author do? We don't name characters we've already named. We use pronouns for them, right? We we know them already, so we, we don't have to name them again. And I think that's something of going on here. Uh, additionally, we could understand that maybe Go- that Gomer isn't named because she has forfeited her right to be named. She's an adulterer, right? And think about what God has said to his people. Loami, you're not my people. I'm not even going to name you my people. And here we have Gomer not named. So I think that's a convincing argument for me. Again, different scholars arrive at different uh, answers to that. And, the, and, and so... Uh, Come to a conclusion yourself. But as we go through, I'm going to see this. This is Gomer. So God says, go and love an adulteress, Hosea. And this is very shocking, isn't it? Because what do you do if your spouse has committed adultery? 
You get rid of them. You throw them out. You divorce them. You remove them from the life, uh, right from your life. You cut them out. They're toxic, right? And to use modern parlance, right? They're toxic. So let's cut them out. And more than that, under the law of Moses, a woman caught in adultery could be killed. It's a capital crime. Her and the one she's caught with. Hosea had rights under the law of God to be done with Gomer. Because adultery kills trust. It defiles the marriage bed. And brothers and sisters in Christ, let me just state here that while adultery may be common in our culture, and while in some circles it may even be celebrated, that it should not even be named among us. And I understand that we often, right, for the the great majority uh, of us, we do not take our marriage vows with the intention of committing adultery. We at the altar say, I'm going to love you and love you alone. But if we're not watchful, we may find ourselves in this situation. Solomon tells husbands to be satisfied in the breast of the wife of his youth, of your youth. That's Proverbs 5, 18 to 19. I want to speak the words he writes thereafter in Proverbs 5, 21 through 23. Why does does Solomon say that? Be satisfied in the wife of your youth. Why does he say that? Proverbs 5, starting in verse 21. For a man's ways are before the eyes of the Lord, and he ponders all his paths. The iniquities of the wicked ensnare him, and he is held fast in the cords of his sin. He dies, he dies for lack of discipline. And because of his great folly, he is led astray. Solomon should have heeded his own advice, for his end was not as, his, as was his beginning. Jesus realigns us in the Sermon on the Mount on this issue. He says, if you look at a woman with lust, you've committed adultery in your heart. So guard your heart. Guard your eyes. Wives, don't give a reason for your husband to go anywhere else. Husbands, don't give a reason to your wife to find something she needs from someone else talk to one another if nothing else for the sake of your witness of christ talk to one another but that's a digression Hosea is called to go and love a woman again one who has undoubtedly wounded him greatly if this is his wife who is who is an adulteress how wounded do you think Hosea is How angry do you think he might be? Go and love a woman again, an adulteress even. And notice what God enjoins to this. This is the object lesson. Even as the Lord loves the children of Israel, though they turn to other gods and love cakes of raisins. Now, to all of you who think raisins are a matter of sinfulness, let me just add here that it's not the problem of the raisin cakes. 
Uh, actually, if you look in the Old Testament in First Chronicles 16.3, you find that David gives out cakes of raisins on the occasion of the Ark of the Covenant coming into the, the city of Jerusalem. So it's not that they're bad per se. But what we do find is that they're often used in cultic worship. So in worship of false gods, they would be uh, used as celebratory objects of sacrifice to false gods, to, to nothings, right? But I want us to track what's going on in Hosea's life here. Hosea, out of all people in the northern kingdom of Israel, understands what God feels towards his people Israel. Hosea loved a woman, a woman that left him, a woman that sold herself out to others, a woman who was an adulteress, breaking all bonds of trust between her and her husband. And to this woman, to his wife, he is to return and love again. Interesting there, if it's love again, maybe he stopped loving her. And we wouldn't blame him. God loved a people, a people that left him, a people that sold themselves out to others, a people who were adulterers, breaking all bonds of trust between them and their God. And to this people, his people, God says he will still yet love them. Pause and consider that. Let that sink in. And we do have to ask, who is God speaking to here? Certainly all the people of Israel, but in particular view must be those that God has in mind his people, his chosen people, his people who have not bowed down to false gods. And why do I say that? Because this passage is an encouragement unto them. Destruction is coming. Destruction is and devastation, and deprivation, and exile are going to be certain for the people of Israel. God is going to bring his wrath to bear on the land and on the people. There will be war. And that's depressing. And that can make even the most uh, faithful faint in sorrow. We think here maybe of even uh, the book of Lamentations, of Jeremiah, the weeping prophet. And if you read through the book of Lamentations, you feel the prophet's depression. God has bore his wrath out on his people. God has destroyed his chosen city, Jerusalem. What are we to do? What is there left to do? But let's pass on. Right? Let's, let's be done. But this is an encouragement because God says again and again to his people, Right? Even as the Lord loves the children of Israel, even as the Lord loves them, even as the Lord God, the great I am. And understand there, that's if you look at your uh, Bible there, the word even as the Lord, you might notice that the Lord, your Bible may do this. It may have, be all in capitals. And the point is, is that is the covenant name of God that God revealed to Moses in the burning bush, I am. And why is that important? Because the God who was and is and is to come says this. 
My purpose is love for my people. God says again and again to his people, I love you and I will show my love again. I have not turned from you, even though the majority have turned from me. I have not. And for us, brothers and sisters in Christ, this passage stands as a reminder that though the world around us may be destroyed, though our land may be taken from us, though pestilence and famine may devastate, God has not forgotten his people. He has not forsaken us. And to us, even those of us who have played around too much in a culture that is unfaithful to him, that is given over to Satan, he says, I will yet capture your heart. Beloved, God loves you. Though you may have your dalliances, if you are his, you are his. And that, by the way, should not make you feel like, well, I have more license to sin. I can do whatever I want. Because if the love of God compels you to sin, you have misunderstood the love of God. And I would ask you to examine yourself to see if you are in the faith. Because what the love of God, even despite our sinfulness, should do is break us. What sinful wretches we be to take for granted God's love for thee, to offer worship to any other, to seek the gifts of another lover. Yet this love is ever true, offering redemption through the blood of Son only begotten, that our sins may be forgotten. Put away the raisin cakes, topple idol that it breaks, Father, Son, and Spirit three, a greater love there will never be. God gives the command to Hosea, and let us see next Hosea's obedience in verses 2 and 3. Hosea's obedience, verses 2 and 3. The scripture says, So I bought her for 15 shekels and some barley. That Hosea obeys God tells us of Hosea's great love for God. At least understanding Hosea's great fear of God because he obeys God even when the the question, the call to obedience is not one of pleasantries. He is a stark contrast to the people of God who hear the commands and disobey. So he buys back Gomer. And this this word, so I bought, it might be rendered, so I paid. Uh, this is a word that indicates trade. And there's even some idea in our passage here that Hosea haggled the price of Gomer. Hosea haggled the price of Gomer. The going rate to redeem a female who made a vow under Levitical law was 30 shekels. You could look at that in Leviticus 27 verse 4. Leviticus 27 4. 30 shekels. The rate, rate to redeem a slave that had been gored was set at 30 shekels. That's Exodus 21:32 Exodus 21:32 And we know that the life of the only begotten is worth 30 pieces of silver. Right so this is a pattern we see throughout the scripture. And it's likely that something like this is in view. Gomer has sold herself or had otherwise fallen into slavery. 
and this slavery was of prostitution. It's likely something in view. And, and what we see here is that Hosea doesn't have enough money. If 30 shekels is the going rate, he only has 15. And so he haggles for her. He's like, but I got a bunch of barley here you can have. Can we make a trade? Can we do a deal? I'll throw in a goat. You know, he doesn't actually throw in a goat, but that, you know, that's, that's the kind of idea here, right? He doesn't have enough money. Hosea is not this wealthy prophet going around slinging money everywhere. Hosea is a, a, a prophet who doesn't have a lot. And yet what he does have, he uses to buy back an adulteress, a wanton woman. Hosea barters for this woman who is his wife. And commentators note that this price isn't a great price. It's not, it's not like a, it's a large sum. Gomer doesn't have a lot of value. But Hosea pays for her anyways. We do not know many things about Gomer's situation. Again, we, we don't really know, uh, was she a bondservant? Was she a slave? Was she sold into it? How did she get into that situation? We don't know why she got into that situation. We do know that she went after others. She had a disposition of unfaithfulness. And to her, it was no small thing to abandon her husband, Hosea. And remember, her husband, whom she had three children with. What we can understand is that she had fallen far. And what does Hosea instruct her in? Verse 3, And I said to her, You must dwell as mine for many days. We might see this kind of like this. I've paid your wages. And I'm going to support you. You're going to be mine. No more going out. You're mine. I paid for you. You have what you need. And then he continues and says, you, now shall, you shall not play the whore. And as we see this, each command becomes more and more restrictive. Thirdly, or belong to another man. You're not going into the bedchamber of other men anymore. That stops here, now, for good. And then he adds, so will I also be to you. And in this, Hosea instructs that not only will she not have the pleasures of her adultery, but for a time, she's not even going to have the rights of marriage. The conjugal rights of marriage will not be enjoyed by her. One commentator puts it this way. He says, he has bought her not for his own pleasure, but in order to reform her. Hosea has in mind the purpose of God for his wayward wife. Hosea wants to see Gomer reformed. He wants to see her faithful, not merely to himself. So his greatest concern isn't, I just want you to be faithful to me. His greatest concern is the purpose of God, even for the people of Israel. Be faithful unto God. And all this is God's lesson. So let's look at that thirdly. God's lesson, verses 4 and 5. God has a purpose in all this. And he says, For the children of Israel shall dwell many days without king or prince, without sacrifice or pillar, without ephod or household gods. All this wasn't to just make Hosea uncomfortable. 
Right? God wasn't just like, Haha, I, got a, I got this great trick to play on the prophet Hosea. He won't see this one coming. Now, God has a purpose and a plan in all this. It was to portray the purpose of God. Because even in the deprivation of the marital rights to Gomer, God wants the people to understand that they will be deprived. And what they will be deprived of are all the institutions they rely upon. Look at that first, king or prince. They're going to not have king or prince. They're going to dwell many days without their own political institutions, without their own government. Why? Because the Assyrians are going to come in and overthrow it. The Assyrians are going to come in and put their own government in place. And then the people of Israel will be under the subjugation of the Assyrians. And we know from the history of the people of Israel. Why, why does God do this? Because in the history of the people of Israel, the kings were often leading the way in unfaithfulness. Uh, at the outset of the divided kingdom, Jeroboam the first, Jeroboam the son of Nebat, if anyone says you're a lot like Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, that's a, that's a bad, you do not want that, right? You do not want that. Jeroboam the first created places of alternate worship. You can look at that in 1 Kings 12. He was worried that the people would go down to the southern kingdom of Judah and then they would want to stay there. So he's like, hey, we'll create some gods, we'll, we'll build them up and, and we'll put them here. And you come and worship here. And king after king in the northern kingdom did that. But he goes on, he says, you're going to live without king or prince and without sacrifice or pillar. And in view here, we have some of the religious institutions. So not only are they going to lose and to be, be deprived of their political institutions, they're going to be deprived of their religious institutions as well. And understand that what God is depriving them of, some of them are quite legitimate. Right? It was legitimate that they had a king. It was legitimate that they had sacrifice. God did command sacrifices to be made under the Old Testament law. But we also have to understand that these things have been corrupted. A pillar, a pillar here, is actually in reference to a, uh, a stone, just a st chunk of stone set up and often set up at places of worship. And they were to signify a God. Uh, now, in the scriptures, sometimes we see set up rocks, set up a, a pillar of rocks, right? We see that sometimes commanded by God. But we have to understand that what is never commanded is that these pillars be set up as objects of worship of God. And indeed, in Deuteron Deuteronomy 16.22, Deuteronomy 16.22, they're expressly for prohibited. They're forbidden. God says, and you shall not set up a pillar, which the Lord your God hates. And so that's what these people were doing in their places of worship. They would set up these pillars to image God. And God shall not be imaged. And also as, as frequently as things are created as standbys, as images of God, they become the objects of worship. Right? They obscure the reality. The third thing that God says that they'll be without ephod and household gods. Again, an ephod can be a legitimate part of the people's worship. Go back to the book of Exodus. You see that God actually commands the construction of such a garment for the high priest. So it was a garment to be worn by the high priest. And in it would be stored 
the Urim and the Thummim, which were objects to understand the divine will. We don't really know exactly what they are. Maybe they were something like dice or something cast that would help the people understand the divine will. This, by the way, does not give us license to do that today. Right? So let me just add that claim, claim there. Right? But this, too, is something that can go wrong. Go to the book of Judges. In Judges chapter 8, Gideon creates such an ephod. And it says there that all Israel whored after it there, and it became a snare to Gideon and to his family. That's Judges 8.27. Judges 8.27. And in this, we should recognize the propensity and the creativity of humanity to turn every good thing evil, because such is the corrupting nature of sin. And the last word in this verse is in reference to household gods. Household gods. God will remove everything, legitimate and illegitimate, and deprive his people of it in an effort to reform them. It is under his chastisement that the people will return. So Hosea has commanded Gomer, be deprived that you may experience renewal. And that is the message of God to his people. Be deprived. Because afterward, verse 5, afterward, the children of Israel shall return and seek the Lord their God. The children of Israel shall return. And this idea can be a little ambiguous. It can mean that they will return to the Lord. They will return and seek the Lord. Or it can mean they'll return to the land and seek the Lord. And either way we understand it, both have to happen simultaneously. That is to say, for the people to be able to return to the land, they have to return to the Lord. And when the people return to the Lord, the Lord will return them to the land. So both of these things are dependent on one another, regardless of the way we take it in the immediacy. They will seek the Lord their God rather than seeking after everything and anything that offers chance of prosperity. Because that's what the people were doing, right? They were worshiping the false gods because they thought, well, if we worship the Baals and the Ashereth, well, we'll have fertility. We'll have children. We'll have, uh, we'll have a great harvest. We'll be established in the land. And rather than uh, seeking after everything and anything, they'll seek him alone who blesses and gives every good and perfect gift. Jeremiah describes it this way in Jeremiah chapter 50, verses 4 and 5. Jeremiah 50, 4 and 5. In those days and in that time, declares the Lord, the people of Israel and the people of Judah shall come together, weeping as they come, and they shall seek the Lord their God. They shall ask the way to Zion with faces turned toward it, saying, Come, let us join ourselves to the Lord in an everlasting covenant that will never be forgotten. The people will come back together in unity, and there will be a united nation again. They will seek David, right? That's what it says here in the scripture. They will seek the Lord their God and David their king. And what is this to mean? This is obviously not the literal David, because the literal David is deceased. He's dead. But this is indicative of the Davidic kingship, right? Because God had promised to David, on your throne shall sit your son, forever and how is this fulfilled in the messiah 
and the Christ. They will seek the Christ. They will come in reverent worship of God, right? That's, that's the last part of this verse. They shall come in fear to the Lord and to His goodness in the latter days. They will come in reverent worship. They will respect the Lord as He ought be respected. They will approach Him in holiness. They will worship Him in the splendor of His holiness. They will give God the glory due His name. But note the last words there. In the latter days. Right? This is not something that's going to occur even in Hosea's lifetime. Because in Hosea's lifetime, what's going to happen is destruction and devastation. In Hosea's lifetime, the judgment of God will begin to be poured out upon the northern kingdom of Israel. And it is only until the judgment is complete that in the latter days they will seek the Lord. So Hosea puts distance between who he is preaching to and the future to come. But there is to be the goodness of God to come. And herein is the encouragement for the people who do believe in Christ, who do believe in God, who fear him. There is goodness to come. God redeems his people. And this is the song of the story of the scriptures throughout the ages. And this song reaches a crescendo in the person and the work of Christ Jesus. Paul describes it this way in his letter to the Romans in Romans 5, verses 6 to 11. Romans 5, 6 to 11. For while we were still weak, while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since, therefore, we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. More than that. How can there be more than that? But More than that. We also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. While we were weak, while we were still sinners, while we were selling ourselves on every street corner to whomever paid the best, Christ died for us. This is the miracle of grace. This is a wonderful testament to the loving kindness, the steadfast love of the Lord God. Because who would accept such a faithless, unfaithful, feckless rebel such as you or I? And the answer is one, the Lord God. Friend, if you have not placed your trust in Christ Jesus, if you have not believed on him, look at this act of love described in the book of Hosea and fulfilled in the person of Christ Jesus. Confess your sins, though they may be vile and repugnant, because Christ Jesus died for one such as you. If you should rely on anything else at all, but the sufficient work of Christ Jesus, you will find yourself disappointed 
and devastated on the day when you stand before him in judgment. If you should ignore his grace now, if you should continue in your sin, do not think that he will overlook it. And do not think that you have another day to decide. Today is the day of salvation. You are not promised tomorrow. And listen, I know that some of you are quite young and you think, well, my years are young. I I still have 50, 60, 70 years ahead of me. You are not granted them. Every one that you have is a gift. You are not promised them. At any time, calamity, illness, disaster can overtake you. Do not delay. Delayed obedience is disobedience. The Lord Jesus promises to return like a thief in the night. We do not know when he will come back. If the master of the house had known when the thief was coming, wouldn't the master stay up? Wouldn't he have watched and waited? Why do you think you will escape his judgment? You will not, for you cannot. But there is a means of obtaining the blessings of God, faith in Christ Jesus, confessing with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believing in your heart that God raised him from the dead. You can be redeemed. You can be forgiven. You can enjoy the glories and the grace of heaven forever with that most excellent of bridegrooms, Jesus. Brothers and sisters in Christ, don't forget this reality either. Do not forget the one who purchased you. Do not run to any other. You are God's alone. Paul deals with it this way in the book of 1 Corinthians chapter 6. 1 Corinthians chapter 6 verses 18 through 20. He writes, flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. As Paul writes to the Corinthian church, right? He says, you were bought at a price. That meant that they no longer had free reign to do whatever they wanted. They weren't bought for the sake of freeness to sin. They were bought for the sake of freedom from sin. They are not themselves any longer. They belong to another. They belong to God. And so you, Christian, glorify God in your body. And understand that it may not be the issue of sexual immorality that you're dealing with. Although that is common enough. Whatever sin it is, whatever it most captivates you, put it to death. Implore the Lord. Ask Him. Pray to Him. Say, God, deliver me from this. God, give me strength over this. God, make this Make this thing that I love that is, that is sin, make it repugnant, gross, disgusting. Help me to see what it really is. Ask him for the power of the Spirit to put the death the deeds of the body. He has bought you with a price. Glorify God with your body. 
Brothers and sisters, marvel at the wonderful love of Christ Jesus. Wonder at the work of God. This passage isn't about just some prophet some, some years ago with some weird act he was supposed to do. This passage is a testimony of the steadfast love of the Lord and His everlasting purpose for His people. They will be His and He will be theirs. And you, beloved, if indeed you have believed, are His. And He is yours. Wonder at that. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we we thank you for your great act of grace towards us, the, the steadfast love that you have shown us. Father, even as you have called your people and, and, and you have made them to suffer, you have yet called them in love that they would turn to you. Father, that the grand purpose of all that you do in this is this, to redeem your chosen people. And that you will use whatever means is necessary to accomplish it. Lord, we thank you for that. God, we thank you for the discipline and the chastisement that you bring into our lives that we may be yours. Now, Father, we confess we don't always feel that way. When we are in the midst of sorrow and suffering, we don't feel that way. But we know, Lord, that such suffering is eclipsed is outweighed by that eternal weight of glory to come. Oh Lord, we marvel that your purpose for your people is that we would be glorious like unto your Son, Jesus Christ. That we don't know what we will be, but we do know this, when, when we are like Him in eternity, in that moment we will know and marvel all the more. Father in heaven, we pray for those who do not know you. Lord God, we pray for those who are, are stuck in their sinful ways. Father, we pray for those who love false things more than you. God, have mercy on them. God, let them see the truth of your scripture. Father God, let them see the truth, even what is written here in the book of Hosea. God, may they hear the warnings of judgment. May they hear the call to repentance. And in hearing, obey. For your glory and for their good. And for our glory, for, for our glorious day to come, that day when we will stand before Christ Jesus. For the glory that is yours alone for the good that you have purposed for all your people. To this end, we pray in the name of Jesus the Christ. Amen.